welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke today. We now come to uh, another point in the, the Gospel conflict in Luke 20. And Jesus turns the table on his attackers and asks them a question and uh, solves a mystery that the Scriptures contained. Let us hear the Word of God. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? This is God's great and powerful word. May it unveil the Lord Jesus as never before. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Well, if you've ever pursued a degree uh, at the college level, uh, you know that you were daunted by the fact that if you'd chosen a major, there was a whole lot of knowledge ahead that you had to master to ever get your degree or or use it, right? And uh, that mass of knowledge, you had to start somewhere, and so all the classes are structured so that uh, they always started you with the basics, In fact, uh, university and college-level classes have always gone by a four-tiered system. The 100 classes, the 200s, the 300s, and the 400s. You may not know this. You may have sat through college and still not known it. But the 100s are freshman classes, very, very beginning in basic elements. The the 200s are sophomore, 300s, junior, etc. You can go to the grad level, and it's 500 and beyond. I think 600 is doctoral. So uh, that's the way people approach Mastering masses of truth. And uh, when, you, when you go through it, you're always start. let's say you're a psychology major, you're starting with Psych 101. I know I did because I was a psychology major. Or Biology 101. Some colleges call it Biology 100. Or Computer Programming 100, I guess. You know, I don't know. For me, it would have been Kindergarten Programming because I have no skills in that area. But So... When we take a look at a massive knowledge and mastering this incredibly important knowledge, we start with the basics. We start at the 101 level. Well, when you come to understanding all that the Scripture has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, by definition, an infinite amount of truth, right? Because He is infinite God. But there are dimensions of who He is that in our finite minds we can understand and grow in the knowledge of. But even that is overwhelming and massive, And so we need to start somewhere, and we need to start at the 100 level when we come to Jesus. And uh, so this text is about two elements of the basic knowledge of Jesus that he told us we need to have about him. You see, the knowledge about Jesus is, well, John said it in John chapter 20, the end of his gospel, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, 
were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So here's John saying, the curriculum on Christ is virtually endless. It can't be humanly contained. And yet we are called to know him. Isn't that true? Jesus said, this is eternal life to know you, Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We are called to know him. And so we've got this immense journey ahead of us. Now, Jesus took his disciples on that journey, and he spent three years teaching them. We all kind of know that when they got to some of their final exams at the very end of his life, they were still unclear on the basics, right? But he also spent three years teaching and showing not only who he was to his followers, but also contending with his enemies. And they spent three years missing his teaching and opposing his teaching. And that's what Luke 20 is about. I told you the theme is gospel conflict, this back and forth of Jesus teaching and them challenging. And it's gone back and forth through the entire chapter. So in the final days, in the final week, it was all conflict over who Jesus was. We now get in Luke chapter 20 to really the final conversation that Jesus would have with his enemies in which he tried to communicate to them and reach them. In Matthew, there's one other encounter, but it's, it's not the same here. If you look at Luke 20, Jesus has endured several attacks that they made upon him and his truth, his authority, and he's defeated every attack. Now Jesus kind of turns the tables and he comes to uh, bring them a question in Luke 20, verses 41 to 44. It's as if he is saying, you've attacked me for three years in this final week of my passion and in this, this last day of assault, you've attacked me multiple times. But I'm going to look at you now. And for one last time, I'm going to tell you the two things that you need to know about me more than anything. In other words, he was going to give them Jesus 101. In this question, with a mystery in the middle of it, he teaches them two great things about who he is. He teaches them that he is God and he is coming. He is God Almighty second person of the Trinity, come to seek and to save, but that one day soon he'll not be coming as a suffering lamb, but as a returning lion to rule in righteousness over the earth. Those two things are contained in this psalm. As we go through it, I think you'll find a lot of comfort if you're a believer, because this will, this will nail in some of the understandings you've had about Jesus, and I hope I deepen them for you. But if you're what I would call a chronic hearer, somebody that doesn't know Christ, but toys with Christ, that's around Christian teaching for whatever reason. You're sort of like that perpetual student that we used to see. Remember that when you were in college? You're sitting there, you're 22, and you're going through it because you have to, and then there's a guy that's, that's 62, and he's been going there ever since he was 22. And you don't know why, but he keeps taking classes, whatever. The perpetual student, we all met one. We used to think, well, they, they just... They like studying, but in, in some cases, they just couldn't make a commitment in life, and so they just stayed in school. And So no commitment. Well, if you're a chronic hearer, kind of a perpetual student of Jesus, but you haven't made a commitment to him, I hope you get a little stirred up and understand that you can't be a perpetual student forever. You've got to commit to what you know. And today I'm going to tell you the two great things about Jesus. He is God and he is coming. So let's move into it together. 
The two truths are basically the framework of my message, and I'm going to ask you to answer two questions. What does the truth mean, and why does it matter? Let's go to the first thing that Jesus leads these people to discover in this mysterious passage from the Psalms. Jesus Christ, in this chapter of gospel conflict and multiple attacks back and forth, now asks them a clarifying question. He, he turns the tables. He admits that they had been expecting a Messiah, these Jewish leaders. And he challenges them with the fact that he is the Messiah. He had been saying that for three long years. He continues to say it here. But then he reveals that they weren't understanding all that the Messiah was going to be. They were expecting a remarkable man. Jesus said, oh no, the Messiah will not only be man, but God. We call him the God-man. That's what gets revealed in this passage as he quotes Psalm 110. So let's take a look at it. Let's dial down and answer the question, what does it mean that Jesus here declares that he is God? The first part of Jesus 101. Well, he starts like great evangelists do with what he knows his hearers do believe. And he starts with the fact that they do believe that there is a Christ. When you look at verse 41, and he says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? The Christ, the anointed one, is how they describe the Jews, the Messiah that they were hoping for. The one that was going to come, that was going to free Israel from domination by the Romans and all the nations of the world, that was going to bring endless prosperity to Israel, that was going to rule from Jerusalem through Israel over all the nations of the world and bring in a golden age for Israel. That's who they were looking for. But they believed he was just going to be one remarkable human being, the most remarkable human being in human history, but he was nothing more than a man. Jesus starts with what they believed, and then he brings in this mind-bending mystery from Psalm 110. Now, this passage is also described in Matthew 22. And one, one, one of the things that Matthew includes, because he was literally an eyewitness to the conversation, Luke was writing it from what he heard from Peter and Mark, but Matthew remembers under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, that Jesus started the conversation in Matthew 22 by saying that, that, that what do you think about the Christ? He asked these Jewish listeners. And he said, whose son is he? And they answered back, well, he's the son of David. Now, why is that understanding important for you to have? Because they believe that the human Messiah would come through the Jewish people and he would come from a particular line, the human line of David great King David of the past. Now, this was prophesied in Scripture in 2 Samuel 7 when David was anointed king and, his, and Samuel prophesied God's plans for him. It was prophesied that the Messiah would come through the human line of David. He would come from one of David's descendants. And it's repeated throughout the Old Testament. Micah 5.2, the great verse that we've, we've learned about the coming of Jesus, where he'd be born. He would come through the house of David. The prophet Amos repeated it. Multiple Psalms predict it several times. So they knew that the human Messiah, when he came, would come through the physical line of, of David, but he would just be human. It was commonly believed by the Jews. In fact, many of the, the, the people that cried out to Jesus and asked him to, to create miracles for them, two blind men on the road, remember them? They called, and, they called out and said, have mercy on us, son of David. 
So it was well known by the Jews, and they thought he was the human Messiah. And so they called out to him, have mercy on a son of David. A few days before this event in Luke 20, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, they all hailed him and they said, Hosanna to the son of David. They thought he was that human Messiah ready to dominate the world for Israel. Now, it was true that the Messiah did need to come through David's descendants, through his bloodline. And it was true that Jesus Christ did. There's two genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament. In other words, description of the line through which he came in Matthew 1. That establishes that he's in the Davidic line. And then in Luke 3, also establishes that he was in the Davidic line. His father Joseph was in the Davidic line, and his mother Mary was in the Davidic line. And so both of their heritage converge in that sense, by blood through his mother, by legal right through his father. So he really was a son of David. And in fact, uh, he never denied that. He always accepted that term when somebody said, oh, son of David, when he came into Jerusalem and they, they called out to him as the son of David. He didn't, shh, shh, no, I'm really not that guy. So he accepted this. And, and the Pharisees and his opponents knew for three years that it was true because as, as has been pointed out by a lot of scholars, the Jews were very uh, careful about tracing your family line. It was critical to, to how God had organized Jewish society. He had laid out the 12 tribes of Israel and the families that came through those tribes. And it was your greatest possession as a Jew to know what line you came from. And so whenever a child was born, particularly the firstborn son like Jesus was, the first thing the parents did was they made a journey to Jerusalem and they registered their child with the temple officials and the priests in Jerusalem. And the registry of his birth was noted in the registry and kept in the vaults and the archives there in the temple. So Jesus Christ had his name registered by Joseph and Mary, no doubt. On the eighth day of his life, he came to Jerusalem at some point around that time. And the Jews that were his enemies knew it. If he wasn't a son of David, they could have just gone downtown to the temple and opened up some of those big record books and have a couple guys go with their little bony fingers and keep going down the lines and take a look at Christ's real lineage. And if they did, and I bet you they did. I bet you they did. Trying to catch him early. And so he's not a son of David. Their little bony fingers would come down. Whoop! Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary, both from the lines of David, a son of David. So it was all true. They could have turned it all over. So Jesus says, who do you say the Messiah is the son of? Matthew 22. And they say he's going to be a son of David. Now you look at what he says here in verse 41. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, here's where he gets into what they didn't know. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament uh, reference in the New Testament. The most quoted Old Testament psalm for sure. It's placed in multiple situations. The Holy Spirit had a great point to make. And it was that in Jesus 101, the biggest thing you've got to understand is Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was, is, and always will be. Are you guys listening at all, class? That was my professor moment. Thank you. God! 
See, that's what they missed. They believed that Messiah would be merely a man, but the best of men, the noblest of men, the most gifted and blessed of men, and a son of David. But Jesus says, you're right, but there's more. Because in Psalm 110, David is speaking about the Messiah. And he not only understands that he's going to be his physical son, but he calls the Messiah, look at it in verse 42, my Lord. So if Jesus was just a human man, he would have been a physical descendant of David. But here is David, long before Jesus comes, calling him in present tense, my Lord. And he uses the Hebrew word Adonai for God. So Jesus introduces a problem. He can't be just a man because David also called him Lord. Do you see this tension here? Do you see what he's revealing? So he's saying, yes, you're right that he's a man, but there's something more. In this verse, you've got the Trinity in conversation. David himself says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord there in the first phrase is Yahweh, the self-existent God, the great name by which God introduced himself to Moses. It's also known as the I am title of God. And then the next word, Lord, is Adonai, which means master, authoritative master and also Lord. Both terms are used interchangeably in the Old Testament to refer to Almighty God. You can say, how, how is God able to talk to himself? Maybe you're new to Christianity. This is a revelation in the Old Testament, by the way, of something called the Trinity. We worship one God, but he has always been existent eternally in three persons. Who are the three persons? God the... God the... God the Holy... Go back to the middle. God the Son, Jesus 101. What do you have to believe about Jesus in order to know him and be saved? In order to, to get the basics to go on in your journey with Jesus. He's not just an inspiring man who died a compelling death. He is Almighty God. And David here reveals that there was a conversation between the Father and the Son. Yahweh and Adonai. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, the two members of the Trinity, conversing, and the Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your fo a footstool for your feet. So you have this immense situation. Yahweh is talking to the Messiah. So the inevitable conclusion is the Messiah isn't just a human descendant. He has always existed as God. How do you answer? And Jesus says, how, how can he just be David's son when David called him my Lord way ahead of his birth? David worshiped the coming Messiah as God. The only answer to that question is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is not only a physical son of David, but he also has to be the eternal God who became a man. You see, everything about Jesus is wrapped up in that one question, that one four or five word statement. Jesus is, always has been, and ever shall be, Almighty God, second member of the Trinity. Do you see that? I hope if you get nothing else, you'll see the beauty and the majesty of one phrase in your Bible. This is why it's important to study the Bible specifically, to look at each word, to understand each dimension, because the riches of knowing Christ move out of that. The Messiah was going to be both man and God. He's the eternal son of God, as well as a man through the line of David. That's what they needed to know. So what does it all mean? 
Jesus is saying that He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is, he is now man, but He has always been God. At a certain point at His birth, the, the marvel of the incarnation occurred, and we had God, 100% God, also becoming 100% man. Sinless man through the line of David. He took that sinless body to the cross. He took that perfect life to the cross. He had to be perfect man, but he also had to be the eternal God to bear an eternal penalty for your and my eternal sin. Do you see why this is critical? If you don't understand Jesus as God, you don't understand the saving work he did for you. It's crucial. Now, was Jesus really God? Oh, yes. In fact, he had spent the past three years demonstrating that he was God to all of these people standing around still questioning him. I went back over this and, and I, I, I grabbed one of the oldest books in my library. Uh, it's a little tattered. In fact, it's been taped up because I broke out the back of it. And uh, this is so old that it's got some scribblings from my first child in it. That's Laura's autograph there. Some of you are saying, wow, this is like back when Sanskrit was invented. You know? I'm not that old. Well over 30 years, I'll just put that. Why is it important to me? Well, it was a, it's, a, it's a book uh, on doctrine by Professor Charles Ryrie from Dallas Seminary. And when I was uh, challenged to be ordained into the ministry many, many years ago, decades ago, this was a book that I started to form all my theology because I had to pass written exams and oral exams multiple times to be ordained to the ministry. And so I lived in this book. It's all marked up. It's all, to, it's all you know, can you, can you see it? And so I, I went back to, uh, yeah, yay theology. Um, well, you got to know your pastor knows something. Or he did at a moment in time. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so I went back to this precious book, and I went back to Dr. Ryrie's explanation of what God is like, and, and that's what we call theology proper in, in seminary. And uh, here's a chapter on it. And uh, it talks about the attributes of God. He says, God cannot be defined for no word or, e or even a phrase could express his essential nature. He's infinite rather and eternal, but it is po it, it's not possible to define God, but it is possible to describe God. And so we put together what, it, what he calls the attributes of God, or he prefers the word perfections. And so there are certain attributes of God that form our first study. This is Jesus 101, God 101. And this is where I started 30 years ago when I knew very little but I knew it was called into ministry. And so I went back and I, and I took a look at, at some of these, these titles and, and, I, and I took a look at the life of Jesus and I, sa and I said, if these things are true about God, what, did Jesus demonstrate these things in his life? And I went through and I, and I found, let's see, omnipotence. I know I looked at that one. Dr. Ryrie says omnipotence, as it describes God, means that God is all-powerful and able to do anything consistent with his own nature. Jesus Christ, was he omnipotent on earth? Oh, the power of God flowed through him, didn't it? If God became a man, we would expect him, Jesus, to dis dis display supernatural power with ease, just, just coming out of him because that's God. That would be a true reflection of his nature. Jesus did it. He controlled nature, healed people, walked on water, raised the dead, dominated all the kingdom of darkness, didn't he? The demons, the supernatural world. He did miracles in numbers that John said at the end of his gospel. He couldn't count. There were so many. Was he omnipotent? Oh, yes. 
That's God. Then I looked for Dr. Ryrie's definitions further. He said, God would also be omniscient. That means he knows all things. A lot of you guys are ahead of me. He said, define omniscient. He says, Dr. Ryrie, omniscience means that God knows everything, things actual and possible, effortlessly and equally well. Was Jesus omniscient? Did he know all things? Oh, yeah. He knew everything, including the thoughts of people. Crazy. How many times did he quote his enemies' inner thinking for them? He knew what was about to happen. He knew the entire stretch of world history. He's God. We'd also expect God to be loving. How did Dr. Ryrie define that? The love of God. I got it somewhere. Hang on. It means that God, as a God who is a God of love, seeks good for the objects of his love and seeks the highest good. That's his definition. Was Jesus full of the love of God? Even his critics would have to say yes. We'd expect him to manifest the love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God. The Bible says John looked at him over three years and he said, this one was full of grace and truth. Is Jesus God? He is and he was. I look through his descriptions here, Dr. Irie, for, for other things. Righteousness. He says, quote, righteousness has to do with law, with morality, and with justice. Was Jesus a righteous man? Even his enemies couldn't find any place where he wasn't. And when there were times when evil rose, Jesus displayed his wrath, his displeasure, all of that. He talked about the judgment of the Father that was coming. All of that. Two more. You would expect God, right, he says, to be truthful. How did he describe the truth, the truthfulness of God? Quote, it means that God has revealed himself as he really is. In other words, God never tells lies about himself and that he and his revelation are completely reliable. Was Jesus a man of truth? Absolutely. Everything he taught, everything he spoke was perfect, unassailable, unbreakable. And so that even at the end, those were sent to arrest him said, never has a man spoke like this man speaks. And finally, you'd expect God to be holy, wouldn't you? Dr. Ryrie, let's see how he describes that. Holiness. In respect to God, holiness means not only that he is separate from all that is unclean and evil, but also that he is positively pure and thus distinct from all others. You'd expect God in human form to be holy, and he was. He was sinless, so that even his own enemies multiple times admitted they couldn't find any accusation against them. And when Jesus said, which of you finds fault with me, the room was silent. Jesus ever has been, was in the incarnation, and is today. Who? God. That's our description. So uh, the scriptures have always borne this out. In Hebrews chapter 1, God promised this is what his son would be like when he arrived on earth. Hebrews chapter 1 covers all of the Old Testament and into the Gospels in four sentences. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Old Testament. Moses and Samuel and Isaiah and Malachi. All speaking of one great thing, the arrival of his Savior Son to the planet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Who, who was speaking when Jesus was speaking? God! 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Who created the world? Jesus Christ, alongside God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Did you ever know that? Now look at this. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ is God in the visible. In the visible. That's where he was before those people. That's why he could look at Thomas. I think it was Thomas. Maybe it was Philip. In John 14, 9, on the very night in the upper room. And he said, Philip, have, you been, have I been so long with you and yet you do not know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I'm the radiance of God invisible right in this room. So I think you understand this precious point and understand what it means that Jesus is God. Well, as a follow-up question, why does that matter then? Why does it matter to you as a young Christian? Why does it matter to you as a skeptic? Because when you come to Christ, you come to a person, you don't come to a system or a religion or anything else. You've got to understand who He really is. At its essence, true Christianity is not a system of thought or morals, although Christians do have systems of thought and morals. Nor is true Christianity an organization of people into churches. Some people say when they became a Christian, it's simply because they joined a church. No, that's not becoming a Christian. Some people claim they became a Christian when they started to clean up their morals and their system of thought. No, that's not becoming a Christian. Neither is it true that Christianity is having some sort of spiritual experience. Though we do have an experience with God at times. No, just because you had a spiritual experience is not becoming a Christian. You see, the essence of true Christianity is to enter into a personal relationship with the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, This is eternal life that they may know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you have to know who He is to be in relationship with Him. Doesn't that make sense? In other words, I've said it to you for years, you can't be wrong about Jesus and right with God. People get so ticked off when I say that. I've had people challenge me on that. Well, they're very sincere. Yeah, but they don't know the true Jesus. They've been involved in this religion all their life that has Jesus in it. No, you can't be wrong about Jesus and right with God. So there's two conclusions you see, this matters because if Jesus, let's, let's take it in the negative. Let's argue backwards and say, well, if Jesus, Jesus wasn't God, how would that affect your relationship, your faith? Well, number one, if Jesus wasn't God, then he was a savior who couldn't save. The last time I checked, I had offended an eternal God with my defiance and my sin. And an eternal God can hold nothing but an eternal penalty over me. I needed an eternal God to come to a cross at a point in time and take the eternal wrath of the Father so my eternal penalty could be paid. The only one who could have died on the cross for me was the God-man. You believe anything less about him, you cannot be saved. 1 John chapter 2, read it. Secondly, arguing from negative, if Jesus wasn't God, then he was a Lord who shouldn't be followed. If he was just a man, he died a man's death and he never rose. 
I don't care how inspiring you find the teachings of Jesus to be, how compelling you find his life history to be, how majestic you find his innocent death to be. It doesn't matter. He was a, a man who's dead and gone. He's now humanly dead. But if he was God, he's divinely risen. You don't have to obey a dead man. But if he's Lord and God, then you obey him as Lord. You see, the world doesn't want this, the consensus of the world's thought. One author said the general consensus in the world is that Jesus was a man. He lived and died. He lived a noble life, an insightful life, a wise life, a devout life, a religious life, a compassionate life, a sacrificial life, and a well-intentioned life. But he was simply a man, and he died a man. The world loves to talk about him and adore him in human terms and keep the divine away from him because they don't want to be accountable to someone who would be God. That's our whole world system. They'll be happy to talk to you about Jesus and say they have great thoughts about Jesus and they have warm feelings about Jesus, but he was just a man. He's not the Savior. And if the enemy can keep people thinking that through, that true, this author says that fits perfectly with Satan's agenda because if Jesus was merely a man, then he's not God. He's not the Savior. The Bible isn't true. Christianity isn't genuine. It's a false religion. I'm here to tell you he's Almighty God. You see, I believe that nonsense about Jesus, that he was just a man who fell into an accident in history. He was part of a dusty past until I read him, until I went to the scriptures and began to study him. And passages like Romans chapter 1 blew into my mind where Paul talks about the fact that God promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, his son, verse 3 of Romans 1, who was descended from David all the way through human history according to the flesh, and he was also God. This is the one, the mind blower, verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I couldn't defeat the resurrection, so I had to accept that Jesus must have been God. I read him that way, then I trusted him, and then I met him. And now I know. That's what being a Christian is. Well, let's move quickly to the second dimension. The first teaching of Jesus 101 is that He's God. He's the Savior. He's the eternal God to whom you'll give an account. The second in, in our text, go back to Luke 20 now, is that He's also coming back. Take a look. The Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah is God. David said, he's, he is my God already, though I know he's going to come out of my physical loins, this miracle of the God-man. But what did the Father say to the Son? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is this all about? This is about the great plan of God of the ages. I told you that Psalm 110, which, David, which is quoted by Jesus here, is quoted to or quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament scripture. So the Holy Spirit was intentional here. Why did he make this the most quoted statement of the Old Testament? This is my opinion. Because it tells the whole Christ story. Look at it. It talks about the Lord God, the Father saying to the Son, "Sit here at my right hand." What's the place? It's heaven. It's the throne room of God. And the Father is telling the Son, come and sit here at my right hand. What did sitting down mean? It meant that that person who was coming and sitting down had finished a work. What work had he finished? The cross work. 
Psalm 110 is talking about the moment when Jesus ascended back into heaven, ascended into the throne room he left 30 years before, having died for your sin and risen from the dead. He had now ascended and he comes back into the throne room and the father is saying, my son, you finished the work. You finished the great salvation work on the cross. Now sit. You've got no more work to do. Sit at my right hand. And then he says, sit and wait. Until I, Almighty God, Jehovah God, do something, verse 43, until I make your enemies your footstool. What's that talking about? All that God is going to do between the crosswork of Christ and the resurrection and the end of human history when he sets all things right and he defeats Christ's enemies and sends Christ back. Why is Psalm 110 so often quoted? I believe because it tells the entire Christ story. It tells about it as a rival as Savior, as the Lamb of God, and the Father receiving him back through the ascension where he sits down after his work was finished, and then he says, I'm going to do something for you, my son, between now and and, and then I'm going to make your enemies to be your footstool. What did that talk about? He basically, It was an Old Testament image. When a conquering king conquered his enemies, they would bring the kings of the enemies before him. They would get down on their hands and knees before the throne of the conquering king, and he would put his foot on their back or on their neck. And God said, listen, this world has rebelled against you and I for generations but now you've died to save. Now you've risen and you're ascended into my throne room. And there's going to come a day, my son, when I'm going to take all these enemies, all this rebellious human race, and I'm going to judge them and I'm going to bring them, as it were, right before you. You're going to put your foot on their backs and you're going to be finally not just the Lamb of God, but the Lion of Judah. You're going to be the Lion and the Conquering King. That one text, in my opinion, covers the entire Christ story. His arrival, his ascension, his coming return. It also describes the great eternal plan of God. The Father is speaking to the Son, saying this great salvation plan for our glory is is in, in the works, Son. You've gone to the cross, now you're sitting with me. There's a present time where you're in heaven right now, my son, you're interceding for your church. Christ is now in heaven. He was the Lamb of God and saving. Now he's He's, he's, and he was the prophet teaching all the, during his earthly ministry. In heaven right now, what is Christ? He is the great high priest, according to the book of Hebrews. He's sitting there at the right hand of God the Father, and every time the devil comes up to that area and he challenges uh, God the Father's forgiveness over the sin that he knows is present in your life, First John 2 says, Jesus stands, sits there at the throne, shows the Father the nail marks and says, No, Father, she's mine. I paid for her. All that's forgiven. What's going on on earth? He's gathering his church right now, drawing people out of darkness into the family of God. What's going to happen in the future? When he's gathered his church, the world is going to fully rebel against him. You can read all about it in a place called the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And this enemy world is going to curl its fist in the face of God, and God will begin to bring judgments upon this world. He's going to execute his wrath upon his enemies. And when his wrath is complete, he's going to say to his son, son, get up and come on down. Head on back as the great lion and take your enemies. It covers it all. 
Jesus had come as the Lamb of God on earth. One day he'll come back as the great lion. So you've got to understand how all this moves and understand and, and move and, and coalesces in Scripture. This is my belief. It's what we teach. Closing, why does it matter? Well, two things. As coming king, Jesus is going to make all things right. So you don't need to fear what's to come. This is a very big issue in the Christian world today. Christians are fearful about what they see going on in societies and in, in all the domain in which we live in the human sphere. They're concerned about it. And yet God says, this is what I predicted. Evil men are going to wax worse and worse. But I'm going to judge them, and I'm going to bring this all to the end, and you're going to step into the future kingdom of my son where all things will be made right. Now some Christians today are being swept up in, in certain teachings about the fact that actually we're supposed to make the world right and then give it to Jesus. There are well-meaning people that believe in what's called post-millennialism and they're good, godly people, and they, but they take a look at the Bible and believe that this world is just going to become better and better. <laughs> All evidence to the contrary, but they just keep teaching it. And that the entire world is eventually going to become fully evangelized and Christianized in every dimension. And when that happens, we're going to welcome Christ back and we're going to offer Him His kingdom. We will have done it. But that's not the view of the world that the Scripture gives us. From the book of Revelation and so many other Old Testament prophecies about the times of the end, it's easy to see that the world is going to be a terrible place that descends into greater depravity and greater rebellion. That's why God will need to finally judge. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, oh, these last days will be terrible and perilous times, and they're going to grow in intensity until God's final judgment falls and Jesus comes back for us. I believe he's coming back in a rapture moment when he's going to take all of his bride in a twinkling of an eye to be with him. And we will not undergo the fullness of the wrath of God that he's going to pour out on his enemies, Psalm 110. We will be exempt from that, the great tribulation, the full tribulation period, all seven years of it. All will be exempt from that. We'll be worshiping him in heaven. And finally, we'll be coming back with Jesus to see him establish his rule over the earth. A wonderful thousand-year reign called the millennium, and then the dead will be judged, and his enemies will be finished, and will go on to an eternity with him. Now, I don't believe that we're going to make this place a better and better place and hand it to Jesus as some kind of religious achievement. You may believe it, have no quarrel with you, but I, I just... The Bible, as you read it, literally and grammatically, just doesn't seem to teach that. Some others have taken this teaching and they have gotten involved in a, a variant of it that, that's concerning. It's known by various names, Dominion Theology. It's also known as Christian Reconstructionism. It's also known as Theonomy. And this is a, a, a growing dimension of how many Christians are thinking in which they believe that it's the responsibility and the destiny of biblical Christianity to eventually rule all areas of society all over the world. 
every area, from political to economic to media to uh, business, that Christians are called to reconstruct this society in the image of what God would want it to be and then rule it by the moral laws of God, the Old Testament moral laws particularly. You're saying, wow, that sounds like something extreme. Well, actually, if you listen to a lot of Christian speakers, read a lot of Christian authors today, you'll see that it's a thread right underneath some of their teaching. Those who hold these views believe that it is the duty of Christians to create a worldwide kingdom patterned after the Mosaic law, the moral laws of God, and they believe that Christ will not return to the earth until that work is accomplished by us. So God is the servant of what we're going to do. He's helpless until we get it done. I'm sorry, that breaks every definition of who God is that I've ever known. You see, Scripture says that Our mandate is the same as when Christ ascended until he returns, preach the gospel and disciple believers from all the nations. Matthew 28. We're not to overthrow the governments of the world or take over the businesses of the world or throw our collective Christian weight around in a bid to have dominion over everything as some of these teach. Instead, we're to be light and salt, aren't we? Matthew 5, to a dying world. We're to evangelize and disciple those who believe, and we're to labor in this, 1 John 2, until he comes. It's his decision. You see, we believe that the Bible teaches a premillennial view of the kingdom of God. We don't see that God ever commanded the church to take charge of and revamp society. Instead, we see the command for believers to preach the gospel. That's Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, I think the world is going to be totally reformed when Jesus comes back. He'll be doing the reforming, not us. The wickedness of man will grow worse and worse. The rebellion of man deeper and deeper. The evil of man darker and darker. The hatred of God by man more intense by degrees. And the judgments will fall And God will return and deal with this himself. Even such a marvel as the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That is in part an answer to prayers. It's in part Christians being what the Bible says we should be, salt and light in our individual lives. God allowed a blessing upon our role as voting citizens and praying citizens It was a great development, but don't let it become a great distraction. Social change takes second place to gospel preaching. You must understand this. Jesus left us a great commission, not a great contention. You see, biblically, Jesus is telling us here that the second coming of Christ will be when he, not people, defeats his enemies, and puts all things under his feet. He says, he doesn't say in verse 43, we'll wait until our people get it together, revolutionize the world, and make it fit for our return. Does he? Verse 43? Who's going to make God's enemies subdued until I make your enemies your footstool? I hope you see this. Jesus is coming back as the lion, and he's going to have to come back and deal with human evil. 
So this is the the domain of the Scriptures you need to understand. Why does it matter that Jesus is God and that He's coming back? Number one, because as coming King, Jesus will make all things right. So you don't need to fear what's to come. You just don't need to fear what's to come. He's in charge of everything, even though the evil will rise. You live for Him, find your security in Him, tell other people about Him, and trust Him. Here's the second as I close. As coming King, Jesus will judge all people's future. So be ready to meet him. Remember I told you I was going to have something to say about the perpetual student, the person that's toyed with Jesus but never trusted Jesus? That's for you. Yes, he's coming back. Oh, yes. And if he's coming back and you're still included in verse 43, you're still an enemy of God, what's he going to do? He's going to come back with a great sword of judgment in Revelation 19, and it'll be too late for you. You're going to literally be falling on your face before his greatness and power, and you're going to feel his foot on your back because it will be too late for you and judgment is coming. Well, these are marvelous truths contained in a handful of sentences, aren't they? So, what kind of grade are you going to get in Jesus 101? You know, I do believe that many people are saying that the, the last part of the end times may be approaching. Personally, I, I think there's a lot of possibility of that. It's sort of like when you're getting to the end of the semester and you goofed around through <laughs> all those weeks, right? None of you, I, I did this, none of you apparently. You goofed around through most of the semester. And now you're facing all these projects you put off and these papers you got to write. And most of all, you're facing a final exam and you've hardly cracked the book. A lot of people are like that with God. You get to decide how you're going to pass. Are you going to trust Christ for who He is, the God-man? Are you going to graduate with flying colors by believing and receiving the true Jesus, and enter into the joy of thy master at the end. When God meets you in the final moment, he says, enter into the joy of thy master. Or, are you going to toy with Jesus? And maybe right now, are you thinking of dropping the class? And facing him on your own. Remember what it felt like to go to your professor halfway through the semester and try to drop the class? Remember when you tried to get an incomplete and tried to argue that you'll take it again and you'll do better, but you had this come up and that come up. And you remember when you waited too long what the, what the professor gave you, don't you? You got an F. If you're thinking of dropping the class and facing God Almighty on your own, I'm sorry, but he doesn't grade on the curve. For surely Jesus is God, and He is coming back.